Just you and I. Yeah, you got it. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with a company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 101 of the Adventures of Angular podcast. I love episodes that are also binary. Which that, What would that be? That would be like episode five, right? If this was binary. <laughs> Today on our panel, we've got John Papa. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> All we got was static. As a, that's, that's John. That's static you hear? That's John. He's static. He, he is static. John has become electronic interference. <laughs> well, hopefully we can figure out John's technical issues through this episode. We've also got on our panel again, the awesome Jules Kramer. Hey. And then we have some, some awesome special guests. Jules is going to kind of act as a special guest today because the two of the people are on her, the, the two guests that we've got are on her team. And that is Rob Warmold. Hey. And Stephen Fluin. Hello. And these two are develop DevRels. What is what do you guys? Is there like an official name for your titles? We're developer advocates. Developer advocates on the Angular team. Awesome title. So we are going to be talking today about the status of Angular two and where it's at. And there's just a lot of cool stuff that's going on on right now. Elite recent stuff. So this is going to be a really great episode. I'm really super excited to talk about it. So before we do, though, I think it would be a good idea to have Rob and Steven take a quick minute and talk about themselves, their history with Angular, and uh, maybe give us a little bit of an idea of their jobs, and then we can move into our topic. Sure. So uh, I've been on your podcast a couple times before, I think. But actually, the last time I was on your podcast, I think I was just like a contractor on the core team. And since then, I've actually joined Google as a full-time employee. Previous to that, for sort of three years before that, I was an Angular just developer out in the outside world doing Angular apps for enterprise and my own kind of purposes. And yeah, so I've been doing that. And I joined the as a developer advocate about three months ago, it's been. And yeah, that's pretty much where I've been. Where have you been? So I have uh, I joined Google about a month and a little bit more than that ago. Uh, as a developer advocate, before that, I used Angular a ton um, out in the, the field 
Um, so I was a developer advocate in another company, um, and then I did consulting for uh, enterprises and startups uh, out in the, the real world, so to say. How I really think about developer advocacy is we're really here to represent being your team out in the world, um, but then also to try and represent the, the real world within the, the team to, to make sure that we've got kind of both lanes of communication as open as we can get them. I love it. Definitely a, an important, super important role. So I definitely want to talk some more about being a developer advocate for the Angular team. But before we do, I think the important stuff is really going to be the state of Angular and what's what's going out. I was surprised to find out that five days ago, as of the time of this recording, which was uh, June 14th, that there was a blog post posted about the coming improvements for routing in Angular. And I've been... I don't know, not necessarily terribly vocal, but definitely vocal about the fact that we've got a deprecated router. It's actually named the deprecated router, and that's what we've been using. And that's what's, you know, you go to the, as of right today, you go to the documentation site, and that's what you would, that's what the documentation site is written in. So we definitely needed a new router. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the new router, and maybe, uh, Stephen, since you wrote the blog post, you kind of go over the highlights of what's in the blog post and what's coming up for it. And Rob and Jules, you guys can pitch in whenever necessary. Sure, sure. So the, the high-level story with the router as it is today. So as of a, a recording, we were at Alpha 3, but we're actually really proud of this, this router. We, we've been working on it for a, a little while now. Um, what we're really trying to do is to acknowledge and respond to all the things that we learned from the community over the, the last few months. Uh, we've gotten a ton of feedback in terms of kind of how do guards work, how, uh, how do we want the, the routing declarations to, to look as well as uh, we've kind of been validating the, the build and the construction of the router with a lot of the more advanced techniques, such as template compilation, that we're, we're trying to make uh, easier for the community. And so kind of all of those things culminated in a design of a new router, which is the, the current router, with the, the real intent of a, a few things. So we want it to be obviously easy to use. Um, we wanted it to be uh, much more reactive. So it's uh, if you look at some of the work that the NGRX team was doing, we actually ended up combining our efforts with theirs. Um, we had a lot of feedback from them to try and make the capabilities of the router much more reactive. So, so to, to exemplify that, if you have a component, you can actually get an observable with the parameters being passed from the route to that component. And then you can actually change those parameters uh, via route navigation without having to reload the component. Just by the observable, you can kind of bind to new values, which is kind of a, a very exciting property. So overall, I, I've been using the, the new uh, this router for, I feel like, more than a week now. It's solid. It's easy to get started with. I mean, you, you basically, instead of adding a bunch of route declarations um, on each of your components, you, you can do it centrally now and really design your entire application, and then the appropriate components and child components get loaded at the appropriate times. So I, I'm a big fan of this router, and I think it's going to be easier for all the, the developers out there to, to use, as well as to take advantage of some of the more advanced techniques. And I, I, we should say that I think that we you know, built the first one, what is now referred to as Angular Deprecated, and I think a few weeks before NGCon, we sort of decided that maybe this wasn't the right path, and that we needed to kind of start again. And so this is the, the limbo that everybody's been in, right, kind of since NGCon. And I think at, at NGCon, it's Mike and Brandon from the, from the NGRX team, like, kind of sat down with us and said, look, you know, we have this thing that people seem to like. And I think it was, we've been kind of quiet about it over the past few weeks as we've been working out, is it exactly what we want to do? And I think, yeah, where we're at now is we're very, very happy with the state of this router. I think it's, and I think everybody's played it so far has gone, yeah, this, this makes a lot more sense in terms of how it works. And I think it's probably closer to the Angular 1 router in terms of like how you configure it. It's easier to see what your application looks like at a glance. 
And I think it's a good foundation for some more interesting stuff that will come later down the line on top of it. And we, we called it an alpha version because we're still working on adding more features and capabilities to it. Uh, but we're very soon going to expect that to, to come to an end and we'll, we'll move into kind of beta release candidate stage. But if, if you just compare it kind of head to head against the, the earlier uh, incarnations of the router, it is already better than them. And so that, that's why I definitely recommend people use it as of the release. So that's really awesome. I'd like to talk a little bit more about it in depth. For example, you'd mentioned that it was different, similar to the Angular 1 router. So let's talk about syntax, right? How much different is the syntax from the current router that we've been using in Angular 2? So completely. And I think that kind of the most important difference to realize is that in the, the sort of previous versions of the Angular 2 router, you know, you would you were defining your configuration for routing on each component, right? So you would add a decorator that was routes, and you would kind of configure your routing for the children on that. So everything was very kind of tightly coupled to components. I think maybe we initially thought that was the best kind of way forward. You know, everything's a component. What the, the new router does, the, the final router does, is... You effectively provide it just like a big object. So very much in the same way as Angular 1, you know, you would say uh, what URL and template URL. In this new one, you basically say, like, here's the path that I want you to listen on, and here's the component that I want you to put uh, in the routing tree. And so it's like you have a bunch of components, and then you have this configuration object that you give to the router that kind of sets up the tree, if you like. Um, and that's kind of the most, like, striking difference you'll see between 1 and 2, and I think probably for most people coming from Angular 1, it's you can think about it a lot closer to how, say, UI router's nested configuration works. It's not exactly the same as UI router, but it's that same kind of like you can describe the hierarchy of your application with this big object. And then the other the other big part of that, I guess the other major change, was that one of the problems we ran into, sort of one of the fundamental issues with the first iterations of the router, was that if you wanted to have, for example, an auth service, that would allow you to check and see, am I logged in before I could go to this component? That was quite difficult to accomplish with the old router. And now that's, again, it's a very simple declaration on the route configuration. You just say, you know, use this function or this class, this service, to check if I'm authorized to activate or leave or whatever. So I think it's centralized configuration. makes the whole thing a lot easier to reason about. Very interesting. So I can see that there's like... You can specify activate or can, can activate, can deactivate, that sort of thing. On the on the routes, yep. Okay. So you specify on the routes and not on the components. You have access to the components, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the activate case. Mm-hmm. But the, I think that the primary thing to mention is that they are decoupled, right? So you can use a component in multiple places with different children. It makes the whole system a lot more flexible. And, and really, one of the big things is in lazy loading case, it means you don't have to fire up and instantiate the component to know if you're allowed to go to that. So you get some nice efficiency saving from that as well. Right, right. So that was definitely one of my big complaints with the uh, last router was that inability to do that. I know that uh, Brandon, as it Roberts, I think had done yep. a lot of awesome work around that. One of the other things that I specifically like to do with Angular 1, and I know that there's varying opinions on the viability or best practice nature of this, but there's plenty of times, and, and then also it was a lot worse with Angular 1, if you wanted to preload data, Angular 1 was basically just a function, you know, controller is a function. So if you wanted to load data, you, basically, you had to do a bunch of uh, callbacks. It's not quite as bad in Angular 2, but what about that? What about saying, I want to preload this data, and I don't want to route, I don't want the page to show up until I preload the data. Is that still more of a, oh, you need to go there and then show some kind of a spinner while you're loading up the data within the component, for preloading the data with the component, or can you actually say, don't even begin to route and change the route until this data has come back. 
So you're talking about this sort of resolve functionality. Yeah. yeah. We don't have a hook that's, that's kind of defined as resolve. And I think probably because we, we sort of slightly differ on that, you know, we don't want you to necessarily wait until you arrive. But the hook, so the can activate hook, you can actually do exactly what you want to do in there. So you could, you know, effectively hold rendering of the component until you do some fetching. It's not going to pass it into the component, but if you wanted to use can activate to say, like, go ahead and preload this data, stick it in the service before I arrive, then you could absolutely do that. Gotcha. So it's not quite the same as transmitting the data over the way that Angular 1's uh, resolve worked. Right. And I, I think that part of the reason for that is that this idea of reactivity means, like, we want you to get to the component as rapidly as possible and then allow you to, from that component, react to things like, I don't know, the ID changing, right? So if you're looking at a list of users and you go from the list detail, you don't have to continually reinstantiate that component. So resolve doesn't necessarily make sense in that context, right? right? So right. you just want to make sure that you stay on this component don't continually re the component, but just change the data as the as the route parameters change. So you can accomplish the same things, but I think that the model is probably slightly closer to an Angular 2 way of doing things. So performance-wise, say that I am going to check that they're logged, that I'm logged in, you know, the user's logged in before I allow them to visit a specific route. So I do that check. Well, that check's going to involve heading over to the server, asking some data and coming back. Then I get there, and now I need the data, so I've got to make another trip where I wish that, oh, I, I would have liked to have made that call at the same time I was checking on the auth call, right? So that's going to be a case where you're going to want to do kind of that same preloading mechanism where go ahead and fire it off and preload it into a service. Then when you get there, ask the service if it's there. If not, you know, just listen or subscribe to it until the data is available. Yeah, I think the flexibility of the, the can activate keeps the ability to do whatever you want in sort of whatever you want. So you absolutely do, you know, parallel, do an auth check and do a data poll and make sure that both those things complete before I actually activate that component. Gotcha. Very cool. So you mentioned that uh, this router is kind of relatively new. I don't know. A lot of people will probably realize or probably know the history that the original router was written by Brian Ford and the new router, or I don't know if the original router is written. The original Angular 2 router is written by Brian Ford and he's left the team. So this new router, how much of this is kind of uh, taking his work and just bringing in and repackaging it up and putting a different surface on it? And how much of it is like completely new scrapping what was in the first router? I think probably the, the way that Victor would describe this, I think, is he would say that it's probably kind of 50% of each, right? So I think that there's some, there's some really good conceptual stuff in Brian's first kind of iterations of the router. And then I think that one of the interesting things about the other half of this, right? So the NGRX team, and I should say that, like, I started the NGRX group, right? But yeah. Brandon and Mike, who, who wrote the, the NGRX router, right? Like, I think they really looked at what, you know, if you were doing an ideally, like, super modern application using all the kind of fancy bells and whistles like RxJS and all the stuff that we like in Angular 2, what would routing look like in that model, right? And I think that the, the third Angular router is kind of the best of both of those things, right? Like, it, it doesn't pull in everything that the NGRX router but it also kind of does bring in some of the learnings from the first couple iterations of the router. I think it's like a, it's a really nice middle ground between the two. Hey, Rob. Yeah. Can you explain kind of what the lifecycle hooks are for the new router? Yeah, so the, the two that I know of at the moment, and like there may have been one added since I've last looked at it, and I think that we have flexibility to add them if it becomes something we need to add, but the two are really can activate and can deactivate, basically. Can activate gets uh, passed, effectively like a, it's basically just you can pass in a service, like any any sort of Angular service, and then you return a promise or an observable that says, yes, you are able to activate. 
And then can activate is really more useful for like if you wanted to make sure somebody didn't route away if they had unsaved data, for example. Can activate will allow you to sort of pop up a message that says, hey, are you sure that you want to leave this because you haven't actually saved this bit of data, right? So those are the two main hooks in the area, right? That second you're talking can deactivate, right? Can deactivate. Yes. Okay. And so this so, similar one existed in the in the first iteration of the router. Now it's where they're defined that has changed, right? Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out. I know you just talked about this, but it's worth clarifying that I think in the old one, the deprecated router, your can activate was actually part of the component, if I remember correctly. But that's not where it is now, right? Right. And, and so that makes more sense. I think it makes tons more sense. And if you wanted to accomplish the same thing where you had a can deactivate, like check on the components, the can deactivate hook, hook actually gets past the instance of the component. So you could then do a check with something, you know, call that same method on the component to check and see if it's allowed to. So it, it gives you a lot more flexibility, but I think you could accomplish the same things that you put in the first one as well. Right. So the component that is associated with the route, it can actually have the logic about, yes, they can navigate away or they can't, or it could be some general logic. And in either case, you can either call the component, ask it, say, hey, run your candy activate check, or it could be something more generic like, hey, is there a, a set, is there some service here that has some flag set that mean, means that data is dirty and I don't want them to route away? That's right. Awesome. So it's time to play a game show. I'm going to be your game show host, Rob. <laughs> All right. You can only answer yes or no, or I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm going to throw out a couple of ideas of what the router should or shouldn't do. And just tell me, does the new router do these things? For example, can I click on a link and tell it to go to a route? Yes. Can I pass parameters, multiple parameters? Yes. Can I have nested routes? Yes. Can I have multiple routes to multiple different regions on the page? Yes. yes. <laughs> Longer pause, but cool. We call it a uh, Those are crazy John, routes. Will you explain what you just talked about? Multiple routes to multiple pieces on the page. So there are there's multiple ways to describe this too. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Let's say you wanted to have a dashboard. That's like the canonical example I see. Maybe in your dashboard you have different routes that load up different sections of the page, maybe to named regions. Um that's one way to do it. Can you do named regions with a new router? Yep. Yes. So that would be one use case that you could do that. Uh, on the page. And that's something that um, I got really comfortable with when I used to use Durandal, which was the predecessor to Lorelia. Uh, it was really nice to be able to use routing to basically create and light up certain areas of the screen. And we should, we should say as well that you can not only do that, but you can divide the parameters available to those various named views as well. So it means that like part A could have access to different sets of parameters as part B. There's quite a lot of flexibility in there. So here's the bonus round of the game show. If I'm a child component, can I reach up and learn anything about my parent? And if so, what can I do? Yes, uh, you can always. So like each sort of higher level of the router, if you like, has access to its own kind of state, param, et cetera. But you can always reach up to the top to the router instance itself and get a hold of it and really get the entire state of the application from there. In contrast to the first router, there was only one instance of the router version. Whereas in the, the earlier versions, we had multiple sort of instances of the router. We have now we, we keep a single instance of the router, and it keeps the entire state, and then you get access to what are called route segments, I believe, in yeah. the, the new router. Yeah, and you can see all of those URL segments from within anywhere. Yep. All right. Uh, and you guys made it through the bonus round. Uh, here's the final question for the $50,000 <laughs> Wheel of Fortune. 
<laughs> Will, with this router, do I have the option of lazy loading the routes or loading them all on upfront? So I'm thinking is, is this. In the first iteration of the router, you will be able to lazy load the components that fall into those routes, right? But we are currently, I think, in the first iteration, we've decided that just for the sake of getting the core things about routing right, we are punting on lazy loading of the configurations initially. I think that's something we'd like to add in in a later rev, but I think we were we were more sort of concerned that we get the rest of routing properly done, right? So you can lazy load components, absolutely. Lazy loading route config uh, is not supported yet, but should be in a later release. And, I mean, it, it's still technically possible, I believe, because, I mean, there's a, a router.reset config oh, yeah. method where at any point you want, you can load an entirely new router config in dynamically. Huh. So, I mean, you could do it yourself. It's just not automatic. Right. Can you explain to people why they'd want to do that? Why would I want to lazy load wrap config? So if you want to like load kind of the bare minimum of your application before somebody logs in, or if you're in a big enterprise app, you might have 50 different kind of versions of the application that are all dynamically driven. Um, you may want to do that and sort of like make the person log in before you go and fetch the rest of the config. Kind of a white label type app. Yeah, good, good case for it. Sweet, sweet, sweet. You could, you could totally do that. It's not something we're going to provide out of the box, but again, you could at any point you want just inject the router and then you know operate on the config as you wish. Well, that's it. You guys win the game show. Thanks. <laughs> what did we win? Uh, world peace and uh, big hug. <laughs> I'd also like to ask another question about the router and its capabilities. Can I route to two different states on the same page? So same you can give parameters to each of the components, and you can route to multiple components. So via those outlets, so you can have an auxiliary outlet. So yeah, and you can pass different parameters to those outlets. So maybe you can clarify the question. Well, all right. Let me do a simple example. I've got some page that shows a list of things, and if I click the Create New button, the list of things disappears, and a little, like, Create New box appears in the center. right? But I want to be able to link to that Create New so that sometimes when they get to that page, they get in and they're already in the Create New, and sometimes they get in there just in the view. And if I click Create New, I'd like the route to update automatically for me, for myself. But the rest of the page is just, it's just, you know, all the same page. I believe so. You'd have to so, yeah, we need to kind of dig into the specifics there. I mean, it sounds like you're almost routing to, I mean, you could use the parameters and the, the reactive way of building applications to just route to a new set of parameters for a new state and then have that component understand what to do with those new parameters. I would say probably is the answer. <laughs> gotcha. So it'd be like if, if I have the slash new, then the component itself needs to just go in and ask, "Hey, route, is the slash you know is the new uh, part of my route or not?" And if oh, so, do this, and if not, do that. Yeah, you could totally actually. What you want to do? Yes, you could totally do that. If you wanted to have a list and either navigate to a new or to a detail of one, yeah, doable, very doable. No, not not of one. Like I'm I'm showing the list. And maybe the new box pops open at the top of the list, and it looks like a, an item in the list, but the, the list, I'm still just on the list page, right? And the new box for each item in the list just shows up in that case, right? And if, so, if, yeah, you know, I, I think I would use auxiliary routes for that and then just load the, the extra component. You have a name. Can you, can you explain what an auxiliary route is to, so we yeah, understand? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. I think we're actually debating the name of this is one of the, the things why we're still calling it alpha because so the first router said this idea of auxiliary route routes. You'd have a, a you know a route you'd go to you'd have like a primary state that you'd render in, and then some other container in which you could render it in. 
And I, I have actually been arguing with Victor. I kind of fall on the side of I prefer UI routers model of everything is a named route, right? So there's no like primary versus secondary. You just have n numbers of named containers. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely not a, a binary thing. So what, what you can do is on a, a route configuration for a specific route, you can define which outlet you want it to render in. And so you can have slash chat, which loads into a route called uh, right panel, for example. So you could have a slash new that routed uh, just one component into a subset of your page by a named router outlet. So if you you think about a screen you had three containers on, you can basically say, when this URL arrives, put this component into this pane, this component into this pane, and this component into this pane. It allows you to be very flexible on what ends up where. And the best analogy I can give you is like UR router, basically. <laughs> the way that the way that UR router does the name views thing is very, very similar to to how Android or to to Angular 2 router does it. Alright, so let's move on. We've talked about the router a ton, but let's talk about some other stuff like maybe offline compilation and after that maybe we could talk about RC2. So I think that offline compilation is probably the most exciting thing coming down the pipe right now. The big idea of this, basically, is that in Angular 1, when you wrote an Angular 1 application, you know, you would write templates, and then when you ran your Angular application, Angular would bring in these templates, and it would turn them into, basically, the logic that Angular needs to run, and that's kind of how it's all worked for a long time. Uh, in Angular 2, we do this differently. Um, if you've been using an Angular 1 app, or if you're building an Angular 2 app today, You've been using it more or less the way that it works in Angular 1, where we load this template up and we turn it into some code and then that just runs. The thing we're just kind of polishing off the last bits and pieces of is this idea of offline compilation, where we can basically at build time, so during your gulp or your grunt or whatever task, allow you to do that step of turning templates into code ahead of time. And that means that, number one, we don't have to ship all that template code to the browser, which saves you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of KB. Um, and it also gives you a big savings on actual performance in the application. So it means you don't have to do the work of compiling when you boot the application. It means that everything is basically snappy and ready to go as soon as the application launches. Hey, Rob, can I interrupt you for a second? Because I, I want to clarify something. Yes. And in Angular 1, we used to be able to take our templates themselves, the HTML+, plus and send it up to the client early if we wanted to, like caching it. Inlining it, absolutely. Right. That's not what you're talking about, though, correct? No. And so that's, that was a boost in Angular 1 application, but what we're talking about is the step that happens when Angular sucks in that template and what it does with it. And so Angular 1 would parse it in the browser, right? And this is how Angular 2 does it if you've been using it today. And we're talking about doing the same thing long before it ever gets to the browser. And so we're actually going to turn your templates into code, and then you just bundle that code in. And it means that the work of turning them into code does not have to happen in the browser. So does this mean, then, that not only are you turning that code into it on the server, and I don't have to send all that extra stuff up there, but I also don't have to send additional Angular bits up, because it's already the work's already happened on the server for that processing? It, it does a lot of the, the kind of dynamic configuration stuff all happen ahead of time and turns it into code that obviously saves that. But the, the other thing about this code is it's very, very fast code. It's not dynamically generated, so the VM handled it very, very, very well, which is nice. And a minor clarification, that doesn't have to be done on a server. I mean, you, you can actually, and we expect people to do it in their development environment. Can be done on server, CI environment, dev environment, whatever. It's just It's literally a very simple command line tool that runs. 
we want to make sure that it runs in Webpack and system and all these other tools. But at the moment, it's just a just a thing you run and you get templates in, code out. So how does and this relate to bundling up your code? So what's cool about it is that it basically then it works like any other code that you're bundling, right? So once you've turned it into executable code, then your regular bundle process will just pick it up. And that's basically how it works. Now, the module, the, the code that it turns it into, then it has to fit with whatever module system you're using, right? Right. So the, the cool thing about the compiler is that we actually output, output TypeScript from it. You can level down to other languages from, like, from the compiler level, but we just say output TypeScript, and then it goes through the rest of your TypeScript build pipeline into whatever it is you're doing, right? So if you want to use System or Webpack or whatever, it starts at a much higher level than that, and whatever you end up sort of turning it into is up to you. Very interesting. And so does this also mean that you can only use this with TypeScript, meaning people who are writing in ES5 today wouldn't be able to take advantage of it? For the moment, it does. And I think that we we have talked about if we could support ES5 and ES6, but at the moment, it's no. a serious amount of work, but we, we're pretty sure that TypeScript is what we're going to stick with for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah I just, I'm just joking around, but I think it's... <laughs> um, I'd rather just see people move over to TypeScript or ES6 if that's their choice to go, but... I think this. the reason I paused you on this, I think it's important because I've heard offline template compiler be talked about. I think sometimes uh, people get the impression that it's the same thing as, uh, what was it called, ng-template that yeah. we used to do before? Oh, ng-templates or whatever. Yeah, and it's so much more than that. It's not just you know getting the template to the client. It's actually processing the template so Angular can understand how to handle it. Yep. So then what about CSS? Does this also work for CSS? Yep, same thing happens in CSS. Same thing happens in CSS. So it's just handling both HTML and CSS. Not images, I assume. No. Okay. So then what about the actual bundling itself, right? Like delivering a bundle in Angular 2 is not necessarily a straightforward process just because there's a lot of moving pieces, right? People are having running either some sort of a gulp task or you're using system JS's kind of bundler. And I, I've done this and you actually have to, man, you got to kind of work with it a little bit and make the configuration settings right. So I turn all this into TypeScript. Then I got some bundler that runs through and, and or TypeScript then would compile it out to ES5, right? Right. Then I got my bundler that's going to go through and grab all that stuff and stick it all together. And then I get, I finally get this one file that I can then use, Right. One or many files. One or many, yeah, depending on how I decide to bundle it up. What is the development experience like this going to be, you know, is there kind of like a standard development experience for this? For, hey, I've been working with separate files and just asking, you know, my browser to keep requesting because I'm all working, I'm working entirely locally. But now I want to, like, test the bundling process and bundle it and work out with it on my dev. Is there... Are you a, asking for a standard process? Yeah, like browser? a pattern well, more like a pattern that you guys, that the Angular team is saying, hey, this is the best way, or this is the way that we've liked. So I think what's interesting is that, like, we obviously, inside of Google, we do things very, very differently, right? So Google has its own kind of set of internal requirements. And I think that one of the things we're finding is that, in a lot of cases, the outside world is a lot better at this than us, at least for stuff that's kind of consumable, right? So, like, if you're using a web pack, the experience is really, really nice, right? System takes some massaging, but you get lots of good capability from that. And so we're being pretty careful at the moment to not give, like, a blessed solution. I think that for us, the CLI will be that, right? And the CLI will do whatever it needs to do, and you should sort of be ignorant of what that is, right? I think that part of our job on the DA team or the, the DevRel team is to make sure that anything we do here should work across any of the tooling that you like, right? And so, they'll, of course, like six months from now, I'm sure there'll be a new web pack, right? There'll be a new whatever. 
And so for us, it's hard to sort of say this is the right thing. So one of the things I've been doing over the past month is I have played with effectively every bundling tool that exists in the ecosystem today. That's Webpack and Browserify and Rollup and System and things you've never even heard of and things that we packed together. And the answer is that in a lot of cases, it depends, right? What do you care about? Do you care about fast execution? Do you care about lazy loading? Do you care about maximum flexibility? Do you care about the best developer experience during your, you know, your day-to-day dev cycle? And for us, it's hard to give you a, like an exact answer, but... but I mean, I think what we're really trying to do is we're trying to blaze some of those trails for you, and we're trying to, to kind of package up that developer story, but I think that's something we're still working on on our, our road to final. And I think you'll see that, like, like you know, the, you mentioned the, the template inlining thing, right? Like, that was not something invented by the Angular team. That was built by the community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons we're super stoked that we're getting close to actually releasing this thing, because then it lets the community and their millions of awesome brains go out and start building tooling that we hadn't even thought about, right? So how does this affect relative paths? And then before you answer that question, could you maybe give a brief overview of relative paths in Angular 2? So you're talking about the, the template URL problem? Yeah, template URL and, and CSS URL, or styles URL, to style so the URLs. Cool, the cool thing about the, the, sorry, the offline compilation step is that's running server-side, so that more or less eliminates the bundling problem, or the, 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 the relative URL problem. And the, the relative URL problem for your listeners is, if you write a file in a folder, so if you write, you know, my component, and it's in, like, app slash user slash whatever, it's in some deep path, the problem is when you build a bundle, this idea of relative path disappears, right? So your this kind of final output bundle has no idea where in the file system or where on disk to go find the template that it used to be next to. And so we have this kind of uh, solution right now, and I use solution, I'm air quoting, you can't see me doing this, but we have the solution that allows you to basically use module ID or module name which kind of works. It's it's something that like we're very much limited by the browser environment. We have this kind of like sort of workable solution for dynamic mode, but template pre-compilation solves that problem out of the box. Just turns it into code, and then it works like code, and everything's nice and easy. All right. So um, I want to kind of revisit this just a little bit, just this problem, and talk about it, like some of the development experience, and you can kind of tell me how this is affecting it. So one of the great things about relative paths is, like you said, I'm way deep in my tree, and I've got this component, and I also want to have a template for it and maybe a style sheet for it. So yep. I've got URLs that point from my a template URL and a style URL that points from my component to those other two files. And normally, the URL that I have to give it has to start from like the root of the application, which would be you know, maybe slash app, slash user, slash blah, slash blah, slash blah, right? Yep. And that kind of stinks because the minute that I, in development, decide, ah, these three files or this component, I don't want it here anymore. I want it in this different subdirectory. And I go and I move it. Now all those paths are wrong. And I've got to remember to update all those paths. So that's one nice thing about, about relative URLs is instead of pointing at the whole path, I just say, hey, I, this is the file and it's in my current subdirectory, whatever that is. But of course, like you said, you have to use this silly hack where you say, all right, here's this thing, module module ID, that tells the loader where I'm at so that when I say go get my HTML file, which is in the same directory, it knows what that directory is like. So for development experience, it's one thing. It's, oh, now I can just move these around. But then when you bundle it all up, it's that other problem, right? I bundle my component up, and now it's no longer in a subfolder anymore. It's just part of this bundle. So the HTML is still out in the subfolder, and knowing where it was isn't really viable anymore in a production environment. So I want to bundle that in. So it makes sense to me that when you bundle all this stuff up or when you can pre-compile these templates and then they just get bundled in, then maybe that's easier. But still, you got to actually find the right bundle 
or sorry, you've got to find the right template within that bundle. So I'm in the bundle, I'm one component, and I'm, I'm no longer in a subject anymore. I'm just a component, and I need a template. And I don't know where – there's a gazillion templates in there, and there's a gazillion components. Components are easy because they have these identifiers, but how do I find my template? And then in the development experience, do I lose relative paths, and I, do I not use them anymore because – and then that way I lose the ability to say, oh, I don't like this component where it's at. I'm going to move it oh, crap, I forgot to update the paths to the HTML and CSS, and now it's broken. So the thing that it enables you to do is use relative paths without worrying about it. That's the big deal about it, mm-hmm. one of the big things about it. Um, and the reason for that is that you can basically think that when the code generation step runs, it basically writes a file that replaces the dot slash my template address, right, with an import statement like the rest of your import statements. Mm. And so effectively, once your bundle step runs, it's not really a relative question anymore. It's a standard static import, like the rest of your import, whatever, from right. whatever call. Right. That totally makes sense. And so it's hard for me, like I've, I've done this a lot over the past month, it's hard sometimes to even conceptualize what's going on here, and I think that'll be one of the things we document over the next coming weeks or so, and like how this works together and the best way to set it up. But the, the short answer is it solves a lot of these really super annoying problems in a very, very clever way, I think. So in the development, when you're in dev mode and you're just sitting there writing, would you potentially then have a watcher going on that's watching those HTML files and CSS files and then every time they change, recompiling them? And then even in dev, you're still you're actually using the compiled, the pre-compiled HTML and CSS? Yes. We'd like to get to a point where that experience is equally as fast and better than using the quote-unquote dynamic code. We are also being very careful that it should not be difficult to switch between the two modes. If you want to go between dynamic and compiled mode, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But we would like that compiled mode becomes the norm, for sure. And that right. you should be able to run that fairly seamlessly and make that your kind of your go-to default environment. Well, and it makes it kind of difficult, right? Because you've got one watcher that's watching TypeScript, TypeScript files, and it's recompiling them whenever they change. Then you have another watcher that's watching your JavaScript files and reloading your browser whenever it changes, maybe, depending on your development environment. Me, I'm not really a huge, I don't really care that much about the live reload. I don't mind going in and hitting reload. But then you've got another watcher that's now watching these HTML templates and compiling them to TypeScript. So that needs to run first. Compile it to TypeScript, then the TypeScript compiler needs to run, compile it to JavaScript, and then if you are using a live reload, then your live reload needs to then run. And the problem that can happen in just the TypeScript and the live reload is that you make a change and it detects, it, TypeScript detects one of your file changes and reloads your JavaScript. And so then the browser starts reloading and then it detects a different change. And now it's queued up yet another change and another reload. So you get the browser that's reloaded and it doesn't have all your code changes in it. And so you think it's working, but it's not. Right? And you've got to wait for it to reload yet again. You, you start doing something, and then it starts reloading on you. It's kind of a so difficult thing, tooling problem. One of the neat things about the compiler is that it is, in a lot of cases, a lot of it is just a wrapper around TypeScript. So you can actually kind of use it to supersede both of your, like, your TypeScript watcher as well. So you mm-hmm. can turn in watch and it would do both your templates and your TypeScript. But again, this is one of the things that, like, we have, we have built the mechanics, I think, that exist today to do the, the command line version of this, right? And I think what we'll be working with, and we're working with a few people in the community already, on, like, how do we best integrate this stuff into the rest of your tooling systems? Webpack, for example, right? And, and Rob, maybe you can correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but, I mean, it's the, the template compiler is not blindly walking your HTML and your CSS files. It's actually using your components to find and compile yes. those. Yes, 
So, so there shouldn't be an extra step. I mean, it's not like you're watching them independently. It's, it's watching it through your TypeScript. Yeah, and ideally, like, theoretically, you would, you would have the first step, have your run your components, scan, and go, go tell it which components and which TypeScript or which HTML and CSS files to watch and then go from there. But. Gotcha. Well, this is really, this is super cool. I'll be excited when this feature becomes even more stable. Is it, is it, so is it like out and usable yet, or is this just like coming? Is it on the dock? Uh, like if you are super adventurous, you'll probably be able to use it in RC2. The pieces are all there. Uh, we're not going to document it yet because we're still moving a little bit some pieces around and working out kind of the best patterns and things. I am able to fairly reliably reproduce it as of RC2. Um, but we want to make sure that it's like the, the dev experience is really good before we ship it out to the world to make sure that it's, you know, it's, it's a consistent kind of right. easy to use experience. But yeah, it's it's more or less we're pretty happy with where it exists today. So speaking, and, of, well, I think for for go John, so the apps that I built with it are very very small and very very fast to the point that it's very very impressive. I think. I think for for me, the performance things that I'd love to see, you know, kind of get finalized are the tree shaking stuff. Maybe you can talk a little about that. Uh, the offline template compiler and then the lazy loading. Those three things to me are really what's holding me back from having some kind of a in, in the build process from getting something out into production with Angular 2. Are those high on the list of the Angular team, or are those things I should uh, be looking forward to this year? Or yes, the, the first one she's taking is interesting because that's like, I don't want to say it's not our problem, but it's not our wheelhouse in terms of like that's generally done by your tooling. But I've been using a lot of Webpack and uh, Webpack 2 and Rollup, which are very good at it, and they both do a pretty good job at it right now. So those two tools will certainly be supported for what you want to do. And, and the part and that... And Rob, I made a big mistake. I actually mentioned tree shaking and didn't say what it was. Do you want to explain to people what roll up or tree shaking is? The yeah, general idea being that like Angular and your code may have a lot of stuff that's written into modules you may or may not actually end up using when you build an application, right? So Angular has, I don't know, 400 modules. You may only use 200 of them and you may only use, you know, a subset of the code that's in those modules. So tree shaking, basically when you build your bundle, it kind of scans your code and says, oh, okay, you're not using this thing. So I'm just not going to include it in the final output. So it gives you big savings on code, uh, actual bundle size at the out. Because that, that really helps people who say, you know, Angular is so big, even though it's gotten smaller. Uh, I'm not really using all of it, therefore I don't like it because it's such a big framework. Where this kind of counteracts that whole argument of, well, that's great, it's big. Yes, at development time using it all. But when you tree shake, you're actually getting rid of anything you're not taking advantage of. Yeah, that's always been the problem. And I think that's one of the cool things people start seeing is that, when we shipped big kind of fat bundles of code, you always got what you got, right? And the trade-off you get when you set up a build system, which has overhead, of course, you bring in only the code that you need. And I think that the ecosystem as a whole is very much moving towards that. Uh, you know, JavaScript is, as a community in general doing this. Um, and I think that Angular is really well-placed to take advantage of that, for sure. So, like, I did a, I did a build today that it was 47k gzips for a, for a basic application, right? So significantly smaller than anything you've ever built in dynamic mode in Angular 1. What does this mean for mobile? It means, for a start, everything loads much faster, and less code is, again, going to be significantly faster during runtime on the device. So it's it's both faster to start, faster to load, and faster while it's running. And I imagine the offline tempo compiler really makes a big difference for mobile, too, since we're handling that in advance. Yes. Startup times are much better, and even the code that's running like during your application. So if you're you know if you're updating a long list, the way that that generated code is written is is designed to be very very fast on on VMs. So yes, better across the board. 
So guys, what's left before Angular goes live? And I'm not looking for a date here. I'll be the nice guy and not ask. But, and everyone's, I'm sure, ask, wondering that. But what are the main features like that are left? Remember, Brad had that big list of here's the big things we have to fix. Um, kind of what's what are the highlights? I, I think, I mean, we've kind of touched on this a, a few times during this call. It's just that the, the all of the pieces are there now in Angular, and you can use them today. But we're, we're really working on polish so that everything is kind of uh, much more seamless, much more easy to understand kind of end to end. We want to get how do you judge that, Stephen? I mean, how, how do you judge when it's polished? I mean, how will you know when it's ready? Well, I, I want to get from a world where Rob can use offline compiling to a world where I can use offline compiling. <laughs> I like that. Or Dan Wallin, nice. our good friend, calls it the mom test. When my mom can do it, it's, it's done. And we have Mishka building apps, which is good. That's a good yeah. indicator as well, so... So yeah, I think that like offline compilation is the big one, and then we've got bits and pieces of polish. We've got a nice little list we're burning through, but we're coming down to it now. I think forms. We've made some really big improvements on forms thanks to care over the past couple of weeks. Um, so that was a big kind of irritating point that was nicely taken care of now. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it's burning through a lot of the kind of open, just outstanding issues that are on GitHub right now. Things that people find annoying or wrong, or that are slightly broken. Yeah, we, we've actually landed a bunch of things in in RC two. Um, I mean, security. Is now feature complete in the respect of the sanitization of, of not only HTML but also CSS and script tags and things like that. The animation framework that we we've been demoing um, that landed in RC two, so you can start using that now. So we're we're definitely getting closer. Which is a great note to end on because we are going to get kicked out of the room that we're in. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up then. Do we have a minute here to do our picks? We got about a minute. Kicked? Okay. Well, let's actually let's start with you guys then, since you guys are going to lose your room. If you guys want to go through and list out your picks, picks for me. So picks for me. Rollup, I think, is awesome. I think everybody should get a feel like try Rollup out. It's kind of the new kid on the block in terms of building, but it's what I'm using for most of my builds right now, and I really like it. And uh, it's a neat tool. My picks are going to be family oriented because my son graduated from high school on Friday. And I am more emotionally driven about this than I thought I would be. So as the good mom that I am, if you have children, please go spend time with them because it goes by in the blink of an eye. But my actual pick is for Google Play's family plan because I have two children, both of which are not with me all the time. And it was awesome this weekend that my daughter could buy all of her own music and all of her own movies and I didn't have to get involved. Of course, you might want to turn on the approval thing, but it's a really cool, cool feature of Google Play. And I guess my pick, uh, a lot of people have probably already heard of, but uh, Plunker. So just the ability to write your code, share it with others online, on the web, in a way that everything kind of runs live. It keeps taking up a, a bigger part of my mind share and a bigger part of my life as I, I continue to share more and more code. And there's a new one today. New one today, as of yesterday. Embed.plunker.co is this new thing, and it's amazing. And it's and beautiful. All right, John, how about you? Uh, well, I've had a strange week as well. My daughter's actually going into high school, so uh, it's been interesting for me trying to let go a little, and we're actually looking into buying a car for her, and it's been so painful to want to do that. Ah, and so I'm going to pick this week that it's she's great a, that... What's that? She's a freshman, and you're already thinking about... I guess I was too, huh? I just bought my freshman a car. Yep, you're right. Sorry, go on. So one, I, so I mixed up. One is going into high school, and the other one's coming out of high school. So it's been one of those. I can't believe they're growing up. But uh, I'm going to pick uh, Ford and Chevy because I've not liked them in the past couple of years. But the more I've looked at these cars, uh, they are safe. They have a lot of good features. And they are so much less money than buying a Toyota or Honda these days. So that's my non-tech pick. And then uh, 
for technology, I've been using Adobe uh, Lightroom lately for a lot of photo editing, and I've been pretty impressed with how simple it can be for, I don't really feel like hitting 17,000 knobs. I just wanted to adjust this. Um, so it's pretty cool technology for adjusting photos. Awesome. For my picks... I'm going to pick the movie that I watched last night, which is X-Men Apocalypse. I picked this on the other podcast, but it was just such a great movie. Really enjoyed it, and the scene with Quicksilver was super, super awesome. And then I also want to pick a board game. I played a board game called P.I. the other night. Really fun, very awesome. It a deduction game. Sort of imagine a little bit of a clue, but... Not even close to like how Clue plays, but kind of that same thing where you got to figure out person, crime, and location. Super, super fun to play with multiple people and just very enjoyable. Great game for parties. So I'm going to highly recommend the board game PI. Check that one out. And those are my picks. So that was it. I think we'll uh, say goodbye and thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 